Welcome to Second Nature Podcasts. My name is Mike Brown, and this is my story. In this episode, I will begin with an idea and two definitions of addiction. I then discuss some family situations, my beginnings with alcohol, and how my addiction evolved. This is episode three, where it all began. The first idea behind addiction is that it is simply people making bad choices. They lack willpower. Although that may be the start, it is hard to believe that someone can continue to willingly make the wrong or bad choice that could lead them to causing bodily harm, destroying relationships, potentially ending up on the streets, and in worst case scenarios, overdose and death. I believe this concept stems from individuals lacking knowledge and basically not knowing any better. It is an old idea that was formed when there wasn't much research or work put into the source of addictions and carried on by people who may be too stubborn to change their opinions. It may have been used as a scare tactic to try and stop people from experimenting in the first place. It may have worked for some, but for others, this would leave them questioning. Why do I feel like I don't have a choice, yet I continue to make the wrong one? The medical definition of addiction as defined by the American Society of Addiction Medicine is as follows. Addiction is a treatable, chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addictions use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. This definition focuses on addiction as a disease that can be caused by multiple factors and can be inherited through genetics. From a 2016 report done by the American Society of Addiction Medicine and the U.S. Surgeon General, they concluded that up to 50% of the disease can be attributed to genetic factors. Gabor Matei, MD, author and addictions expert, who worked for over a decade in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by drug addiction and mental illness, offers an interesting take on the idea of addiction being a disease in his book, The Myth of Normal. Though the disease paradigm still embraced by most addiction specialists and treatment programs is more compassionate, it too misses the human element. It separates mind from body, or in this case, brain from mind, seeing the brain in purely biochemical terms. The fact is, personal and social life events filtered through the mind shape the brain throughout the lifetime. You cannot scientifically cleave biology from biography, especially when it comes to a process as psychologically layered as addiction. Simply put, seeing addiction as a disease that is inherited through genetics does not provide enough emphasis on the personal experiences that happen prior to addiction. Seeing the brain in purely biochemical terms takes out our human traits, our consciousness, thought, feeling, emotion, and stress. It does not bring into account cycles of experience that may be leading to family histories of addiction, not solely through genetics. Dr. Matei provides his own new working definition of addiction. Addiction is a complex psychological, emotional, physiological, 
neurobiological, social, and spiritual process. It manifests through any behavior in which a person finds temporary relief or pleasure and therefore craves, but that in the long term causes them or others negative consequences, and yet the person refuses or is unable to give it up. Accordingly, the three main hallmarks of addiction are short-term relief or pleasure and therefore craving, long-term suffering for oneself or others, and an inability to stop. Using this definition, I can relate it to my own experience. I used alcohol and cocaine to escape my shame, guilt, anxiety, and depression, the effects of it leaving me craving more. As time went on and my abuse continued and increased, the things I was escaping got worse and my relationships were affected. And through it all, knowing what I was doing to myself and others, I was unable to stop. Now you could call this confirmation bias as I find this definition to be quite relevant to me. Confirmation bias is the tendency to process information by looking for or interpreting information that is consistent with one's existing beliefs. However, I do not discount that inherited traits and genetics play a factor. I have always had a need for more. It doesn't matter what it is. Where does that come from? Why do some people have it and some don't? As I discuss situations and circumstances that I found myself in, I am hoping that we can see the environment can play a major factor. The battle between what we are born with and what we are presented with. Is it nature versus nurture or is there something more? Alcohol abuse has had its place in my family. It is no secret. Like some, it has been overlooked and seen as just the way things are. On one side, it has been more prevalent. It has caused broken relationships and distance. On the other, it has been present, but not as serious, able to function, but never getting to a point where relationships fractured beyond repair. On one side of my family, one no longer speaks to anyone due to their alcoholism and other factors. One quit drinking due to health concerns. One shows tendencies and has hard time finding their off switch once they start. One dealt with addiction and other health concerns and has since passed. One of my cousins, the child of the person who is no longer in contact with anyone, has also dealt with severe addiction. On the other side, it has shown its face, but not to the same extent. One lived a hard lifestyle, I would classify it as showing tendencies, and an extended family member has become sober after years of abuse. My parents are considered on the side of the family that they pertain to. My siblings are not included, we will discuss my immediate family later on. From this, it looks as if it's a no-brainer that genetics has to play a part. I have two lineages that both show traits of addiction. On one side, it hits harder, with multiple people in each generation. On the other, it skips a generation through my parent, their siblings, misses my cousins, brother and sister, and lands on me. This brings back Dr. Mate's point on the effect of personal and social life events. What did I do or experience that was so different from the rest? Or did I just hit the addiction genetic lottery? 
Before I get into specific events and situations where alcohol was present in my early childhood, I want to make a point. I'm not looking for a scapegoat or someone to blame. These are situations I found myself in, and they influence me in some way, shape, or form. I understand that there are things that I could not control, but I do not blame anyone for me becoming an alcoholic or an addict. Before we move forward, here is some information on how children perceive alcohol. A systematic review of studies regarding alcohol-related cognitions in children determined that children start to acquire knowledge about alcohol at age two. Children start to understand alcohol use in adult culture at age four. Children have certain alcohol expectancies by age four. The impact of parental alcohol use on their alcohol-related cognition is mixed. Research on children's alcohol-related cognitions is underdeveloped. So it is understood that children recognize and begin to develop expectations of what alcohol consumption will do to their parents and or guardians. It is also determined that there is not sufficient evidence to conclude whether or not it does play a role on their views of alcohol later in life. Growing up and having looked back into my childhood deeply over the past few years, there are certain things that stick out. There are incidents of situations where I was surrounded and observed heavy alcohol consumption. One such event took place at my grandparents' house when I was around five years old. From what I can recall, we went over for a visit, and by the time it was later in the evening, we were now spending the night. All the adults were heavily intoxicated. My older sister and I were scared and did not want to stay, so we snuck away and called our mother to come pick us up. This is the earliest negative associated memory I have surrounding alcohol. It was a traumatic experience that ingrained itself into my mind. However, it was suppressed and I did not recall it until I went to treatment where I learned what trauma was. I will discuss trauma in later episodes, but for now, I am just going to stick to the outlining situations. At these family get-togethers, alcohol was the main focal point. This may be one of the contributing factors to this side of the family's higher cases of addiction. Also for this reason, my mother would not attend most of these get-togethers due to the excessive drinking. Case in point of what I explained happened to my sister and I. This situation was the first of many that soon led us to distancing ourselves from this side of the family. I believe that my mother knew these situations were not good for young children, and she was trying to protect us. Another situation or alcohol-related cognition that comes to mind is an idea that stems from summer spent at the family cabin. It is a simple thing, but I believe it had an impact on me. The reason I share its simplicity is because it doesn't take grand experiences to make major psychological impacts. We each have our own levels of sensitivity, and it varies from person to person. The learned behavior that I was presented with was that you can only barbecue with a rum and coke. And for the most part, it didn't always stop at one. So what did I do when I got older? I followed this learned behavior and introduced it into my life. The persons involved had no idea what the influence of this behavior had on me and how deeply I was observing and ingraining it into my psyche. 
So when I got older, and it came time for me to continue the trend, if they followed it, then so should I. My mother always knew, having witnessed it on both sides of the family, that my siblings and I may have a propensity to abuse alcohol. She made no secret about it. When we were younger, she told us flat out. She knew that there was a mix of hereditary and situational influence that could lead us down a dark path. I carried this idea through my early teenage years. As some of my friends started to experiment as early as 13, I remember telling them no, and the reason for this being that alcoholism runs in my family. My abstinence, however, did not last long. I was 15 the first time I drank enough to actively feel the effects of being drunk. It was at a hockey party. All the parents were at one house, so we got together at a different one. I vividly remember the feeling I had after the first beer or two. I felt the confidence it produced, especially around girls, as I was normally terribly shy and awkward, like most teenagers. I felt as though it energized me and calmed my brain of all the anxieties and thoughts that were constantly running rampant. It released me from my insecurities that I had developed, taking a positive undertone from my first experience with alcohol and realizing this is something that makes me feel good. It started to occur more often. As a hockey player, it seemed to be what we did. We started to figure out where and when we could. Some parents didn't care if we drank at their house or we would find out whose parents were going out of town and take advantage. With there being 20 guys on a hockey team, there was always usually somewhere to go. And when you're young, you can drink and then get up and feel a little off, go play a game and then get right back to it. It was like nothing even happened. An example of this was when I remember getting a text from one of my teammates on a Saturday after having drank on the night before. We had a game that afternoon, and he was asking if I was ready to go for round two afterwards. And I remember thinking, we're gonna drink again tonight? From that first experience on, I could never find my off switch once I started. It was always, let's see how many I can drink or how drunk I can get. I didn't like the taste of beer at the time, and it wasn't like we were getting our hands on anything of quality. So we resorted to shotgunning or beer bonging, whatever it took to get it into our system and fast. I thought nothing of it. That idea that alcoholism runs in my family was long gone. I was too busy having fun. I was able to do this and still progress with hockey. I remember saying to my mom when I was about 10 or 11, I'm going to play in the WHL, Western Hockey League. I never focused too heavily on hockey though. I spent springs playing lacrosse and summers just messing around. I never played a season of spring hockey and went to two hockey schools total. Looking back, I wouldn't have changed a thing about it. I was able to take a break from hockey and do other things, letting the passion for it grow as I was away so excitement could take over in the fall. I got passed over in the Bantam draft, which honestly, I didn't really even understand what it was at the time. The next season when I was 15, the same year I had my first experience with alcohol, I got listed by the Swift Current Broncos. What this meant was that I was on their 50 player protected list. 
other teams couldn't talk to me and I couldn't go to their camps. This is when I also realized, okay, maybe I can play this sport pretty well. Maybe I should take it seriously and maybe I can realize this goal. After this news, the following summer was the first one that I spent with a hockey-specific off-ice training program, as well as on-ice skates. I signed a WHL standard player agreement at my first camp. This started with the accumulation of years offered by their scholarship program. For every year that you are signed, and it is continued, you get a year of school paid for to a max of five. I returned to play Midget AAA in Calgary at 16, and then made the Broncos the following season as a 17-year-old. My first year in the WHL was a learning experience. I was in a new town, a new province, a new high school, living with a Billet family. A Billet family is one that takes in players from the team and treats them like their own. My Billet family was great, and I enjoyed my time with them. I was lucky enough to live with another guy on the team who was 19 at the time and had been there since he was 17 as well. This gave me the opportunity to hang out with the older guys away from the rink and slowly be welcomed to the group. I would hang out with them, but I don't think I said more than a few words for the first few weeks or even months as I was shy and had my insecurities. I was scared that if I said the wrong things, they might not like me, leading to me being outcast and not accepted by the group. I did not want to come in hot like I had seen other guys and it not ending in a positive way for them. I later talked to my roommate about this and he thought I was weird at first because I was so quiet. As time went on, we grew a great friendship and he made my experience that much better. We drifted apart after we stopped playing together and we went our separate ways. I want to take this time to thank him for everything that he did for me. His presence in my experience helped me in ways I can't explain. Simply put, it would have been a lot harder for me if he was not there. We didn't drink all that much my first year, but when we did, I made sure to get as drunk as I could. We had our occasional Sunday fun day with games of Beersby. Other than that, we basically practiced, played and hung out. We were living the dream. In that first year, I never played all that much. I was in and out of the lineup, a fourth line player when I did get in a game. Meant to bring some energy, dump and chase, hit guys, occasionally fight, while being expected to more. Fighting was not in my nature. It was easier if one of our players got a cheap shot or hit from behind. But when we were down by a goal and I was supposed to skate around and ask guys or force them to, I never enjoyed this part. I didn't have a switch I could flip that made me want to hurt someone, so it usually didn't end well for me. An example of this, which would come in my third season, is when I got knocked out at center ice in the Saddle Dome, my hometown rink, in front of my family and friends. That one did wonders for my mental health. As the end of my rookie season rolled around and we were heading into playoffs, we had a pretty good team. I was mainly in the stands watching games, practicing the day of with the other healthy scratches or injured players. It was hard to stay motivated. I had not learned the right tools or gained experience and understanding that I needed to keep working. So when I got my chance, I would be ready. Instead, I had settled. I moped along, 
waiting for the playoff run to be over so I could head home, back to my friends and my old high school. We lost out in the second round of playoffs that year, and the time came to return home. When I went back to Calgary, this was the first time my alcoholism really took off. It was mid-April, and I got my hands on a fake ID, since my birthday was not until June. With this ID, I was able to go to pubs, nightclubs, and liquor stores whenever I wanted. My focus was on having fun. I had just played a season in the WHL. I figured I earned some time off to enjoy myself, not understanding that what I was doing was going to have major consequences going forward. Coming back after making a WHL team and playing a season was a strange feeling for me. I always felt a little weird when people would bring it up that I played hockey. I knew there were some negative stereotypes surrounding hockey players. We're big deals, full of confidence, we think we're better than everyone else. And these stereotypes exist for a reason, because yes, unfortunately some guys act this way. But I never felt this way. I always felt discomfort when someone brought it up. I would try and change the subject, ask how or what the other person was doing. I had reached a league that many players dream of and don't achieve yet I still lacked confidence and was insecure in my being. That's where alcohol came into play. It allowed me to break out of this, time and time again. Heavy drinking became a constant habit, not only on the weekends, but also weekdays, over and over again while I was home. I don't think I returned to training for over a month, and when I did, I had already put on at least 20 pounds of fat from drinking heavily my trainer recognized this weight gain and my body fat percentage and tried to do something about it, but I didn't listen. Instead, I stuck to my new learned habits and behaviors. By the time August rolled around and I was to head back to Swift Current, I knew I was in trouble. When I left, I had weighed 205 pounds and I would be coming back tipping the scales around 230. This was not good. I knew I was in bad shape. I knew I had wasted the summer Instead of me coming back primed and ready to take on a bigger role, I did the opposite. I squandered away an opportunity and in the end set myself back even further. When I got back, my coach did not say anything about it until we got through the main camp. Once we got down to smaller numbers with a few cuts or so left, he pulled me into his office and said, what the fuck happened? I don't recall what I said, but I know I wasn't honest. I made something up. I never told him that I spent the summer drinking heavily, filling some void that I was not emotionally capable of realizing. He said, well, you're slow as shit, you can't keep up, and you're not going to get in a game until you've lost some weight. Which was fair, it was true, and I'm lucky that he didn't send me packing. I was a healthy scratch again. This lasted for the first five games of the season. I was right back where I had left off the season before, with the help of our trainer, who I respected greatly, I was put on a diet and given an additional training plan. Although I was trying to get myself together physically, mentally I fell farther into a hole. The realization that I fucked up and put myself in this situation weighed heavily on me. My teammates for the most part did not make it easier, as I was constantly chirped about my weight. 
I quickly fell into the routine of pulling myself together, mustering all I could mentally to get myself through going to the rink for workouts and practice. In between, I spent my time in bed. When my roommate would ask why I was spending so much time there, I would say I needed to rest up for the next commitment, when in fact I was depressed and didn't realize it. This was the first time in my life that I experienced an episode of deep depression. In the middle of this depression, my father came to visit. He knew that I was in the doghouse and being healthy scratched for gaining weight, and I'm sure he was not happy about it. We went to Smitty's on Saturday morning. It was a game day, however, I don't think I was playing that night. During this breakfast, I broke down in tears. I told him that I did not know what was going on with me. I told him that I could barely get out of bed, and all I wanted to do was quit, come home, and possibly play Junior A. I'm sure as a father, these are not the things you want to hear from your son. I know he could feel my pain, but we had never had this type of interaction. We never spoke about our emotions or feelings with each other, like many fathers and sons don't. He listened to me, but pointed out that if I decided to do this, I wasn't coming home to just play hockey and party with my friends. He said if I made that choice, I would be getting a job or going to school as well. There would be no free ride. Although I may not have gained much support on an emotional level from this conversation, I was glad that he provided context to what would happen if I did come home. I knew deep down inside I did not want to quit. I knew I wanted to be there, even though it was a struggle to hold myself together every day that I was in that depression. After that discussion with my father, I decided to stick it out. Coincidentally enough, our team had a sports psychologist come and give us a presentation. After the presentation, he was sticking around for two days to make himself available to players if they wanted to talk one-on-one. -on -one. He provided a sign-up sheet with times, and as soon as he finished his talk, guys went straight to the board to book a spot. Now you would think that I would be the first one to sign up, but I wasn't. I didn't sign up that day. I didn't even plan to talk to him. It wasn't until the next day when my coach pulled me aside and said, you are the only guy that has not signed up to talk with the psychologist. Meanwhile, I'm not going to say that I needed it the most as we can never know what anyone is going through, but I definitely needed it. Why didn't I sign up? Because I thought I knew exactly what he was going to say and I wasn't ready to hear it. In fact, I was probably scared to hear it. It would mean I would have to open up, be vulnerable, again at the time, not knowing that word existed or its meaning. If I tell him all the problems I was having, I would have to hear solutions or proper steps I could take in order to solve my issues. I thought I would just be complaining, whining about those problems, having no clue that the best way we can start to solve personal issues is by talking to someone about them and asking for help. So, with hesitation and my coach's not-so-subtle way of telling me I better sign up, I did, and we met. Ironically, we met back at that same Smitty's, where a few weeks earlier I had that discussion with my father. I was hesitant at first and was not quite willing to open up. I was scared to let this person in. 
Most of the time in the past when I had done this, it had backfired. So at the beginning of our conversation, I had my guard up. I told him the situation I had found myself in. He provided some context and good insight into it. I can't remember if I verbally said that I was depressed, but some way or another we got around to talking about it. He gave me some positive tools to use moving forward, and when I left I was glad that I had met with him. From that point on, I was able to look at things a little more positively and get myself back in gear. I decided I was going to meet my problems head on. I now saw my diet and added conditioning as a challenge to make myself better. I got back into the lineup regularly and started to have a positive impact on the team. By the time playoffs rolled around this season, I was playing on a third line, seeing some power play time and contributing with some points. When it was time to go home and we had our final way out, I was 199 pounds. This could have gone so many ways. I honestly believe it would have never ended the way that it did had I not had that conversation that I did not want to have. I played two full seasons in Swift Current. I was then traded to the Tri-City Americans at the trade deadline in my third year. Tri-Cities is located in Washington State, USA. My time in Swift Current was coming to an end at the deadline whether I got traded or not. There was a new coach that took over, and from my perspective, I did not do the right things in order for him to see me as more valuable to the team than playing a fourth line role. After having success to end my 18-year-old year, and then coming back, this time in shape, excited to get the season going, and to be met with a coaching change and me not being part of their plan, I soon realized that a new situation would be best for me. So I requested a trade and said that if it didn't happen, then I will be leaving and possibly joining a junior AT. I, of course, tried to avoid this situation for as long as possible waiting until two days before the deadline to have this conversation, putting off conflict as best as I could. Luckily, I was traded and traded to a good team. At the time, Tri-City was in first place in the Western Conference. This was an incredible opportunity, a fresh start. When I got there and met with the coaches and GM, they outlined what they wanted to see from me. This was a new opportunity, but just because a new opportunity presented itself, it does not mean that my behavior automatically changed. I didn't magically become a new person. Without acknowledgement, my thoughts and actions remained the same. With my new teammates, I could have been anyone. I did not know a single player on this team. I could have come in, worked hard, played my game, taken advantage of this new opportunity, but I didn't. I showed up with my lack of confidence and insecurities. I wanted to be accepted, so I thought my usual laid-back, self-deprecating ways would do the trick. I again, did not want to come in hot and be seen as a tryhard or a potential threat to some of the guys on the team. Who does this guy think he is? I thought this would be the best way to gain acceptance. The way my life had gone so far. Being accepted was more important than being successful. It's what I had come to seek, wherever I went. I also soon picked out a few guys who might be like me, who like to drink and drink heavily. I quickly found myself in and out of the lineup on another team and fell farther into my old ways. I had started to drink heavier while in Swift Current and it only got worse when I got traded to try. 
almost as if I had said to myself, okay, you tried a different spot, but it's the same situation, giving myself the easy way out, not realizing that I was the one creating this situation for myself. I started drinking all the time, whether I was hanging out with my new drinking buddies from the team or alone at my billet house. As I said earlier, we had a good team. We ended up making it to the WHO final where we lost to my hometown team, the Calgary Hitmen. I was playing most of playoffs and putting in what I could on the ice, but it could have been so much more. When we returned to try, after losing to Calgary, we had our exit meetings. I was surprised by the news that they wanted me to return to camp for the next season. In the WHL, there is a rule that you can only have three 20-year-olds on the team roster. We had a lot of 19-year-olds at the time who would be 20s that following year, me included, and I just assumed that they would want them over me. I assumed I'd be released and most likely on a junior A team somewhere riding my career off into the sunset but it turned out that the WHL wasn't over for me quite yet. When I got back to Calgary for the summer, I started doing hot yoga. At this point in my life, I did not enjoy lifting weights. Part of it comes down to usually being hungover when I had to, so I just didn't. Instead of going to the gym for training, I did hot yoga three to four times a week. This became my routine, drink heavy on the weekend, a few weeknights, and sweat it out at hot yoga. It ended up working pretty well. I got down to a lean 200 pounds again. The body change was so evident that my friends were calling me string bean. When I got back to try for camp, I had never felt better. I was light, my stride was long, and my conditioning was the best it had ever been. I had a pretty good mindset going into this camp. We still had too many 20 year olds on the roster. I thought to myself, this was your last chance. Put what you can out there and see what happens. Preseason went well, and then we moved into the regular season. I was playing on a line with some good young players. They provided the skill, and I used my size and speed to create space for them. In the first eight games of the regular season, I had three goals and three assists, one point shy of what I had in my previous year's 58 games played. My best start by far. We went on our Eastern Swing road trip which meant we went and played all the teams in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. When we got back to try, after a full night's bus ride home, I was pulled into the GM's office and told I was being released. The 20-year-old deadline, where you have to be down to your final three, was either that day or the next. The reason given for my release was that the younger defensemen that were meant to fill in the roles of the two 20-year-olds we had lost from the year prior just weren't doing the job. So they traded for a 20-year-old D-man, meaning I had to be released. I was made available for other teams to pick me up. None did. It may have been my reputation or not supplying enough evidence of my true potential. It could be that I had waited too long to find it. This was the most success and fun I was having playing hockey in a long time. I had finally found confidence in my game. I could play and contribute at the WHL level. And then just like that, it was gone. So I packed up and headed home. By this time, I was being contacted by Junior A teams as this was the usual occurrence when you got released from the Western League. Junior A rosters could carry up to seven 20-year-olds, so there was plenty of room. 
I took some time before I made a decision and of course hit the ground running with my addiction. I had no commitments for almost three weeks, so I was back to my sabotaging ways of heavy drinking. In those three weeks, I lost every bit of conditioning I had. I gained at least 15 pounds, then I joined the Okotoks Oilers of the Alberta Junior Hockey League. Before I got there, my drinking had really picked up, and I did not put it down. I was no longer in the Western League. I was finishing my 20-year-old year in the AJHL. I was playing lots, putting up points. We were getting wins on the ice. Off the ice, I was trying to have as much fun as I could. I was drinking on average four to five nights a week. Part of the reason why I chose Okotoks was I wasn't far from home and I could travel back into the city and see my old pals. Or I could hang around with the guys from the team or simply do it on my own. I didn't think anything of it at the time. This is where my habit really turned into an addiction and I did not have the slightest clue. I was on the victory lap of my career. I was going to take every ounce of living the dream from it. After this season was over, I decided to play and attend Mount Royal College at the time, later Mount Royal University. Hockey was now pretty much an afterthought. It was more of a vessel to put me in a social situation in order to maintain my heavy drinking. When I went to MRU, was also when the partying got a little more intense. There are guys on the team that are older, 22 to 25. So I was back on the new team as a rookie. All those feelings of insecurity and the need to gain older guys' acceptance returned. My lack of confidence, again leading me to the idea that I have to gain these guys' favor and life would be easier. My alcoholism, now heavily influencing that lack of confidence as well. But being the drunken buffoon that I was, always looking for a laugh, a way to make fun of myself or give them ammo to make fun of me, it didn't take long for me to get what I thought was acceptance. This is also where I started to take it to the next level, even further than my last year of junior. This was the first time I was introduced to cocaine. When I first saw guys using it at parties, I was averse to it. Said no a few times, but as the night got on, I got more drunk and I eventually tried it for the first time. I can't remember exactly what my first reaction to it was, as I was hammered, but what I do remember is waking up so stuffed up that I couldn't get any air through my nose. This congestion wasn't just a one-day thing, but it lasted a few. Next time it was available, I tried to stay away, but in the end, I ended up right back in it, again, waking up with those same symptoms. Over time, this side effect subsided and cocaine use became a regular occurrence. I would tell myself that it wasn't a problem because I was never the one buying it. But of course, that soon changed. It started to become an almost every time thing. I never had any urge to do it sober. I would always tell myself, not tonight, but as soon as I would get a couple beers deep, as soon as my reasoning was gone, that addicted voice would say, let's get some. And as soon as that thought crossed my mind, there was no turning back. The high from cocaine gave me a sense of euphoria, a burst of energy, rocking my dopamine receptors and counteracting the effects of alcohol, making it possible to continue drinking longer and harder. This is how I lived my life leading up to that fateful Christmas day. Hockey was an afterthought. School, I could care less. When can we drink and party next? 
was the question I routinely asked myself.